If you had a time machine and 10 years ago, you had a thousand pounds to invest into Netflix. There's this new startup called Netflix and oh, maybe it'll make it, maybe they won't, but you have 1,000 pounds to invest into them. Today you would have made over 50,000 pounds. If you bought 100 shares of Microsoft when they went public in 1986, you could have made over a million pounds at its peak. And if you had a chance to invest into Apple when it was first available, say you had 10,000 pounds to invest, you would have made over two and a half million today. Now, a thousand pounds, 10,000, none of this is easy to come by. You know, I don't have that in my pocket right now. It's, it would be a risk to part with it. But if you knew these companies were worth the risk, if you knew you were going to make 50,000 pounds or two and a half million, it'd be ridiculous to not put up the money. Now, Netflix, Microsoft, Apple, they're all risks, but it's turned out that they've been worth it. The risk is worth it if the reward is greater. So even if you knew the reward when the market started fluctuating and there's ups and downs, you might be tempted to sell it here and there, uh, you'd have to constantly remind yourself of the reward. And that's even if you knew you were going to make millions off of it. Now, in our own lives, we all experience rejection and we all want to experience it less. Why would we willingly take a risk that could bring more rejection? Only when something is worth it. We'd forego rejection if it means there's something greater out there. But since we fear rejection so much, we aren't quick to risk running into more of it. Even if there's a potential for someone to get a reward, if rejection is involved, we tend to shrink back. And, and that's a very self-centered life. Self-centered lives aren't very risky. They're all about self-protection. And so we live self-centered lives, but Jesus' mission frees us from that. It frees us from having to live just out of not experience rejection and allows us to live for something greater, for a greater reward. And Jesus gives us something bigger to live for. It is risky, yes. There's no, Jesus is honest with that. This story is very honest with that. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But compared with the reward, the risk is nothing. So these stories are going to teach us about rejection, martyrdom, and mission. Uh, one that we don't experience too much in our own personal lives, martyrdom. I've not been martyred yet. Um, guess there's always time. <laughs> but following Jesus means we will experience rejection. That's something that we all know. That's something we, we're all very afraid of. And we might experience martyrdom, maybe not. But it's for our good and the good of others that Jesus still sends us on the mission. That could mean martyrdom. Maybe not for us, but definitely for others. So let's talk about uh, rejection first. Because once again, we find this is like the first six verses here when uh, Jesus is back in his hometown. And we find once again, people are amazed at Jesus' teaching. We've been talking about that word amazed or astonished. When people hear Jesus speak, they are, their mind is blown a little bit. But they're also, that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to respond in faith. It just means like, they find it interesting and kind of crazy hearing this guy talk. So they're overwhelmed by his authority and his knowledge. Um, but what happens after this, this amazement? We don't really see faith. Basically, they're like saying... We know who this guy is. Like, we're all manual laborers here. He's a manual laborer too. What does he think he's better than us? They hear his words, but they don't understand him. And the stumbling block to their understanding seems to be they knew some facts about him. They knew he wasn't a scholar. They knew he was a carpenter. They knew he used his hands for work, probably. I mean, this is Mary's son, right? Wait, Mary's son, didn't I hear some story about, like, is he, like, kind of an illegitimate guy? Or, like, what's, what's the deal there? These miracles, like, what's the deal with these? Is he just trying to show off? Does he just think he's better than us? He's just a carpenter. We know him. We know his brothers. 
So he came from a family and from a village of manual laborers, and they're not going to let him put his head above others. They will chop it down. They know Jesus only in a superficial way. They find no reason to believe that he is the king that he says he is. And so more than not being understood, the people were offended by Jesus. It said that they, they, they not only um, did they not like him or think that he's maybe better than them, uh, the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. That's, I mean, it's a very strong word. That's to cause someone to, uh, to sin or to stumble, to anger somebody. And then Jesus identifies as a prophet in verse 4. He's, uh, he says the fate of a prophet is generally not a very long and happy and comfortable life, right? That's not how prophets end. And as we will find out with the story of John the Baptist. The thing is the people who know us best also know best how to take us for granted or how to discount us. Because people might know some information about us and that might cloud their judgment on truly the big picture. I think what we find in these first six verses is that belief in Christ is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just human understanding. Because Jesus was amazed at them for their lack of faith. No faith leads to not getting it. So if we're frustrated with others, or if we're frustrated with ourselves about like not getting Jesus, or not getting the gospel, or seeing like not very uh, not seeing good benefits from that, it's not that there needs to be an understanding of the data of the gospel more, or an understanding of Jesus more, although maybe that might be true. Really, ultimately, it comes down to faith in Jesus. And Jesus' turn to be amazed is when he sees their lack of faith. So he chose to not bring wholeness in a way that he would normally do, like heal others, because of their lack of faith. Now, I think uh, that that's actually a good thing for Jesus to not do that. Because if we're on the wrong path, and we keep on doing the wrong things, and we keep on, all, the only thing we get are good benefits from that. We're just going to stay on that wrong path, and that's actually not good for us. I mean, the now cliched U.S. Uh, megachurch story is uh, a pastor started a church, and he was very overbearing, and his ways of starting the church was not very good, and the church grew and grew and grew, so the pastor continued in those ways, continued in those ways, and eventually it all comes out sideways or some way. So sometimes the people we know best, the people we are around the most, we get blinded to who they really are. That's a bit ironic. It's strange, but it's true. We know them the best. I think that's what happens when we get too comfortable with somebody. I mean, living with Christina, there's still times where I'm like, what? Like, what in the world? She wants a murder she wrote box set as a gift? Who is this person? Who wants that? Who's like that? I mean, do, do we think we know Jesus? Can we easily categorize him? Is he easy to understand, like put, put in a box? Or do we listen to him as he calls us to things that might still scare us? Does he still require us to exercise our faith? Sometimes it's not convenient. And we are like these people in Jesus' hometown, thinking that we know it all, or at least we know enough for us to comfortably dismiss him. But then we also fear rejection by being associated with him. So we try and make him palatable. We dismiss him or we play him down. We maybe don't talk about him a lot. Or if we do, we kind of try and shed him in the, mo- like the least offensive light. Um, that's not good for us. That's not good for others as well. To follow Jesus means the narrow way. And sometimes that includes rejection. And we see that from miles away. The possibility of rejection. Not even rejection itself, but the possibility of rejection. So we take a really long detour around it and think well, eventually we'll end up on that narrow way again. But it doesn't work that way. It's just not how it works. Rejection itself is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And if we never experience rejection, 
as like these stories tell us over and over of what happens, are we being obedient to him? Rejection isn't necessary, but is often just a byproduct. And if we never experience rejection, that also means we never experience Jesus meeting us in our feelings of rejection. Now, Jesus is claiming to be king, not just over some like geographical region or some other time or some other place, but if he is claiming to be king over our lives here in Charlton and in Manchester, that will be offensive. Jesus should be offensive to people who reject his kingship. That's just how it works. That's how it's played out in Mark. In Mark, people generally have three responses, fear, anger, or faith. It's never bland acceptance. So this is countercultural to uh, the way that we're supposed to be, the shallow politeness that we're all supposed to have as really not being nice, just a way of like, you know, not causing conflict. Now I'm not saying we shouldn't be polite or that we shouldn't be nice. Of course we should, but if that's the highest bar that we have as a Christian family, that is lame. Being polite and nice is too far low of a thing. We need more and others need more than that. And that's what it means to live in a countercultural, gospel-foreign family in a world that doesn't recognize our king. This is just how it is. And rejection is something that we are all going to experience one way or another. We will, we will experience that. But if you thought rejection was bad, well, let's just wait for the next story because uh, not many of us probably will experience martyrdom, being killed for our faith, which really must be the ultimate form of rejection. Like, I will not let you live anymore. I will kill you because of, because of what you believe. So this is martyrdom. Should be. Can you move it forward for me, Will? Thanks, yeah. So, uh, Mark, um, this is like the kind of middle story here, or the, the end story here, starting at verse 14 to verse 29. Mark kind of tells a story backwards. So the, the uh, disciples are out, they're preaching, they're teaching, people are getting healed, all sorts of um, kind of crazy miracles are going on. And Herod, who's the kind of king at the time of this area, is uh, starting to freak out. He thinks that it's John the Baptist back from the dead haunting him. So again, we have this like, kind of Halloween theme going on here, like in the previous, uh, the previous chapter. Now, why would Herod be afraid? Why would he, Herod think that John the Baptist is haunting him? Well, Mark goes on and tells a story. So it's a story and then a kind of a flashback story that's going on. And the story kind of went like this. Herod seems to like John the Baptist, at least a little bit. Um, when, but when John the Baptist starts speaking into Herod's personal life, specifically about how he shouldn't marry his brother's wife, it's probably good. Uh, don't do that. By the way, um, that, that's when things get heated because Herodias is Herod's niece and is already his half-brother's wife. Guess it's, it's like a single-line family tree situation here. Um, I mean, if we think we have people in power now with sexual problems, like this is kind of like a, another level. Um, so Herod marries Herodias. What a, a good couple name, Herod and Herodias. Um, and Herodias wants John the Baptist locked up specifically for speaking against against their relationship. Um, and Herodias actually wants to kill John the Baptist. She has this kind of massive grudge against him, which makes sense because he's speaking out about their relationship and it's probably how she's kind of risen to power. Now, Herod likes listening to John, even though John was telling him to change. I find that very strange. Verse 20, it says that Herod would listen to John and he would be, he'd like be puzzled. Uh, I don't know what he'd be puzzled about. Maybe, if, if anything, it must be an ambivalence to change. Because John the Baptist is saying, you shouldn't marry this person. Herod's doing it anyway. Uh, so he, there's some level of doubt or uncertainty in how he's living his life. But at the same time, he likes listening to John the Baptist preach, which is strange. 
Now, I wonder if Herod is maybe like the person who comes to church on a Sunday and they like, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with everything, I agree with everything. And come Monday morning or come Friday night or whatever, um, we're, we're a bit in doubt. Like, oh, should I actually live that, out that thing or, or not? Or, or how do I live my life? So we're, we're a bit puzzled in our own lives. Um, another level of this maybe being hard for, for Herod is the fact that he's the king. He can basically do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And no one other than John the Baptist is going to say otherwise. Well, one person who wasn't puzzled was Herodias. She was not puzzled at all. I do not like JB. Let's kill him. So she wanted him dead, um, but she had to find the right way to do it, the politically kind of advantageous way. And eventually she did. It's Herod's birthday party. The wine is flowing like beer. It's all sorts of fun stuff going on. Um, and then Herodias's daughter, this is Herod's stepdaughter, is dancing for the men. The women aren't there because she had to go out and speak to her mom. I mean, what is going on here? Alcohol, women dancing, like my younger stepdaughter. Very strange kind of sexual things going on here. Um, and then Herod, in this kind of drunken stupor of exuberance, made a foolish promise. Whatever you want, I'm going to give you it all. And fearing what others thought about him, he had to follow through with that promise. And so uh, uh, Herodias's daughter um, told Herod that he want, she wanted John the Baptist beheaded. And so to end this crazy night of partying, John the Baptist's head is there on a platter at the end of the table. A man's life ended at the whims of the powerful and the rich. This is not a story we can easily relate to, but does show just kind of the end point of rejection. Following Jesus means we will suffer. I mean, if we don't quite get it, we have this kind of ultimate story. Jesus is king. Herod is not. When the kings of this world are challenged, there will be suffering. Now, death is the ultimate rejection. And though we don't fear that currently where we are now, there are people in other parts of the world that do and have for years. It's just a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. We may never experience this, but how does following Christ change our lives? How does it connect with our suffering? Because even when martyrdom is concerned, we're still called to follow Jesus. That's got to be the scariest thing we can think of. So we have rejection on one side, martyrdom on the other, and it's in this context that Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. There we go. Thanks. So in this context, Jesus descends, decides to send his disciples out, but he does it in a very kind of specific way. If you have your Bible there, um, this is that middle section, verses 6 through 13. So verse 7, Jesus doesn't send them out by themselves. He sends them out two by two in, in groups of people together. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. Christianity is not something we do by ourselves. A mission is not something that we do by ourselves. And we might be uh, individually connected to people, either like a work colleague or a family friend or something like that. Um, but we're always striving to bring the community of people in together, to work together. That's just what it means, because Jesus knows we aren't good enough by ourselves, and we're not meant to be by ourselves. So mission, just like the rest of the Christian life, is done with others. If we're not, then it's just an unhealthy version of it. So Jesus also gives the 12 authority. He sends them out with authority. He says, uh, basically, we don't need to be afraid of all the possible horrible things that can happen to us, rejection or death or the powers of the spiritual world. It has no power over us, not because we're strong and we've got it figured out, but because we depend and rest on Jesus' authority. So it's within Jesus' authority that we're sent out. And that means our power, our authority, doesn't originate with us. doesn't come from us. And so we don't really have any legs to stand on by ourselves. That means we should be humble. We should recognize that 
our power and authority doesn't start and end with us. This also, I find maybe the most interesting, is a planned inadequacy. Um, Verses 8, verses 9, verses 10. They're not bringing any food with them. They don't have any money in their money bags. They maybe have a need for clothes. They only have one shirt with them, one tunic. Verse 10 is uh, talking about depending on others through, um, turning on Christ through others to provide for us. It's basically saying when you come to a place, stay at one house and let them basically feed you and board you. So they, they don't have anything really with them at all. It's like a planned inadequacy, an intentional inadequacy. The reason why Jesus says to stay at one house because it was common at the time to have teachers go around house to house to house and every house you go to you get more gifts or get more money or get more food and you begin to kind of collect a little stockpile for yourselves that jesus says don't do that basically live live dependent inadequate lives now this gives me hope as we see how kind of small and frail and many times inadequate our little churches meeting here at the second or the first floor here of a of a bar that might have us in a month might not um, I mean, this feels like we just kind of put stuff together with duct tape and things are kind of sticking for the moment. They might fall down any second now. Somebody, maybe somebody's chair will break. <laughs> well, we're not really that impressive. We're, we're not meant to really show ourselves as impressive, though. That's not the, the goal. That's not the game. It's not about being impress, impressive or adequate in ourselves. It's about putting Christ on display, put Jesus on display. The reason why we go through these things that some might be shambolic, some might not be, is not to present ourselves as strong or as cool, but to show the world and ourselves how much Jesus loves us. And also, Jesus says, if people aren't welcoming, if people aren't listening, you're free to leave. And that's judgment against them. Jesus says, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to find the, uh, the verses here now. Uh, whenever you enter house, stay there until you leave. And then verse 11, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That means we can't make other people believe. That's not our point either. We're not here to like twist people's arms and shout at them until they like acquiesce and finally give in. That's not the thing. We just generally in very kind of normal ways talk about what Jesus has done in our lives. And we're called to call others to repent. That also means... That any decision uh, or connection for the sake of mission doesn't have to be eternal. You might have a friend or even like the Longford Center or other things that we think are really good. It doesn't mean we will forever always be doing that thing. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But just because we've once decided to uh, talk to that person about Jesus doesn't mean that that, therefore, until you die, that is your only goal. It means if people aren't going to listen, that's fine. It's not a, we, don't, we shouldn't expect everyone to welcome and listen to us. We move on and talk to the next person. Maybe they'll listen. Hopefully that frees us a little bit from feeling like we're um, bound in chains to the way other people are going to receive us or not. And of course we need to rely on the Spirit to make these decisions. We don't do these things lightly. But we are called to call others to repent. Um, and repent is a word, especially for Christians, we hear one ear out the other, yeah, yeah, repent. But we don't really think about what that means or kind of dwell on what that means for our lives. Um, We're not naturally aligned with God's ways by default. And repenting is just aligning our ways with God's. And it's something because every morning when we wake up and maybe even every single hour, probably even less than that, we're always finding ourselves just slightly out of alignment with the way that God tells us to live. Repentance is realigning our ways with God. And the way that uh, it's written here in Mark in verse 12, it says that they were, it's basically it's present active verbs. It, 
if we were to retranslate it in a way that sounds like weird English but gets the verb tenses, says they were going out preaching in order that people will be repenting, like a constant will be always repenting. So this decision, this, this repentance thing, it's a one-time decision, but it's a one-time decision to follow a lifetime of realigning. It's a one-time repentance that leads to a lifetime of repentance. It's, uh, it might be easy to think, oh, it's just, yeah, I, like, I said a prayer once and therefore I'm good, or I do this thing and therefore I'm good. Um, but following Jesus is a lifetime of realignment. And that's also what part of this mission is, calling people to a lifetime of realignment, a, a lifetime of repentance. Mission doesn't stop when someone says a prayer or becomes a member or does the whatever kind of thing we want them to do. It's ongoing all the time. And it might look different to someone who identifies as a Christian than someone who doesn't, but it's always something that all of us are called to because we know none of us are perfect and we all need to be aligned with God's way. Fundamentally, that's what we're doing. Calling each other something more, something that we don't have in ourselves. Martin Luther had this quote um, that was very famous and uh, controversial when he came out. So the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life, not just a one-time thing. And that means repenting people are humble people. Repenting people are loving because they understand how much they have been loved despite their complete lack. Repenting people don't have chips on their shoulders. Repenting people don't uh, strong-arm people into identifying with their political agenda or religious agenda. They're actually free. And lest us think that um, mission is just words telling people about us, it's also about actions. In verse 13, it says these 12, these apostles, drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, maybe you're not spending a whole lot of time driving out demons. I'm not. Um, but how have we been, ta- how have been talking about this has been um, relieving people from oppression? Physical oppression, spiritual oppression. That's what that looks like, I think, in our world. It's about bringing wholeness where wholeness doesn't exist, where it's lacking. Now, this can be in, obviously, physical ways, making dinner for somebody. Um, just make more of whatever you're doing for yourself and give it to somebody else. It's really easy to do. Or it could be like something as simple as baking cookies and de- delivering it to a neighbor. No one will be offended if you knock on their door and give them a plate of cookies. It's like impossible. How disarming. And if they are, I will take them and eat them. <laughs> Deliver them to me. And it could be in very kind of small physical ways like that, but also in like bigger, more obviously spiritual ways, like praying for people. And not just when you kind of remember it or when it's convenient, but um, dedicating yourself to pray for somebody. You know, that's why we connect with Reach Out to the Community. That's why we connect with the Longford Center, because we want, to experience, we want other people to experience Jesus' wholeness in all the many ways that is available to them. So that's how Jesus sends the people out. So we have Jesus sending people out, and we have the whole story about John the Baptist being beheaded. And then um, let's fast forward to verse 30 that kind of ends this section. Uh, it says, so after all this kind of story of John the Baptist, and he's beheaded, and Herod thinks John the Baptist is out to haunt him. Then verse 30 says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the first time that we find the word apostles made for the 12 disciples here. So there's like some kind of level of, of, uh, of authority that they're getting here. And maybe just an aside to talk about what apostles are and what they aren't. Um, maybe like big A, there we go, big A apostle versus little A apostles. So the big A apostles are these 12 people that Jesus has sent out. They played a very special role in the history of redemption, the history of salvation. They're actual witnesses to Jesus. A lot of them wrote other parts in the New Testament. 
And Jesus gave them and only them a special authority to do that. We don't have the authority to write New Testament anymore. That's done. Those apostles are dead and they're with Jesus now. Capital A apostles. Now, but the word apostle just means sent out one or, or messenger or something like that. So we may not be like John or Peter. But we aren't John and we aren't Peter, but we are all little a apostles. We're all sent out ones. We don't have the special authority like writing more books of the Bible or some kind of special revelation or whatever, but we all have with us the authority of Christ that he sends us out in. So Jesus, oh, maybe that's helpful in some ways of kind of figuring out what the word apostle means. If you have questions about that, yeah, definitely free to ask me. Jesus could have sent out these 12 apostles out in all manner of ways. They're out there. Jesus isn't physically there with them. And yet they're woefully under-resourced. Why would he do that? He could have had them sent out in any way possible. He could have said, here is like an army of people, or here is a kingdom, a political thing, or here is me. I'll be literally with you walking the whole time. Or here, here is you know, some kind of other kind of crazy thing that will make people believe. Why did he do this? Well, I think it's because the mission isn't just for others. It's for us. We sometimes maybe wrongly think that what it means to live out the Christian life, to tell others about Jesus, to live in ways that uh, other people are attracted to, are good for other people. And uh, hopefully that's true. But it's not just that. It's also for us. We wrongly think that mission is for other people out there, and if we participate with it, well, that, that's great, it's just kind of an optional add-on. Um, but if not, that's fine, because we're, we're still okay, because we're still getting discipleship, or somehow we split those two. But that's not the Christian life, because if, if we're with Jesus, we are sent by him. We, in Mark 3, 14, uh, we, we talked about how Jesus appointed us so that we might be with him and that he might send us out. To be with Jesus is to be sent out. To follow Jesus means to follow him where he's going. Now, Jesus' mission is one that requires us to lean on him, to go back to his word. We'll find ourselves in hard situations, find ourselves asking, does this really matter? Or what in the world do I say here? Or how in the world can I talk to this person who just spilled their guts about this thing? Or I mean, we'll find ourselves completely inadequate and under-resourced. We, we know that the answers are in his word. And if we're depending on Jesus, on his mission, we'll be driven back to his word. It will be our life. We'll find ourselves in need of it all the more, the more we're on his mission. And of course, when we read the word, like what we're reading today, it drives us back to mission. So if we're learning about the word and not following through with what it says, those are the people that Jesus has a real problem with. And really, we find ourselves all in that boat. We shouldn't stay there. We should realign ourselves with the way God's calling us to live. And so we find that a life of repentance, of that realignment, is constantly realigning ourselves with God. And that means constantly throwing us back onto his mission. One that we aren't in ourselves adequate for, but Jesus is. So we have rejection on one side, martyrdom on the other, but Jesus isn't afraid. He sends us out. He's always with us. So maybe um, we can go through this uh, little exercise. Maybe you do this with me. Think of one person who's in your life who doesn't know Jesus yet that you feel like is leaning into your life a little bit, maybe more than other people. It doesn't have to be many. Just pick one person. What is one small tangible thing you can do for this person. One person, one thing. What is that one small thing you can do for them? What does it look like to serve them? What does it look like to love them the way that Jesus would love them? You don't have to be Jesus to them. You have to bring Jesus to them. It's very different. It doesn't have to be 
anything mind-blowing or like amazing. And often if we have some kind of mind-blowing plan, we're not going to follow through with it anyway. So don't pick something mind-blowing. Think of something very normal and follow through with it. Talk to people that what, what you plan on doing. If you're in a core group, talk to them. Have them pray for it. That's a way to bring others into the mission with you. And once you tell somebody, you know, like the scary thing, they're going to ask, oh, how'd it go? Like, oh, I actually did do that thing. I'll do it next week. Maybe they'll forget. So we understand the, very, the fear of rejection. Very few, if any of us, have a regular fear of martyrdom. But even in that reality, Jesus still sends us. Christianity doesn't save us from rejection, doesn't save us from martyrdom. In fact, it might be a path towards both. But we need not fear it. If we follow Christ, we must go. Because Jesus doesn't just send us out to the front lines and hang back. Be like, all right, have fun with that. I'll see you later. I'm going to go back to heaven. He always goes first. He's always with us. He didn't fear the cross, though it meant rejection, though it meant martyrdom. He knew very well how this life on earth would end. Jesus would be rejected and martyred on his mission to save us. He was rejected by all. Nobody stood in for Christ. He stood alone. He was put outside the city walls. Nobody stood up for him. He was held up on a cross until he died the martyr's death. Now, probably nobody here is going to experience martyrdom, but we will experience death, every single one of us. From rejection while we're alive to the end of our lives where we have death, Jesus has walked that path. He is with us, and he's saying to us today, there are worse things than rejection. There are worse things than martyrdom. That's not living and understanding and living out of the love of the life that I have for you. That's actually worse than being rejection, than being rejected. There are worse things than being ridiculed, worse things than being the butts of jokes, or being seen as a bit weak or naive or dumb. To live and to not experience Jesus' life, including his mission for us, is that's what we should fear, missing out on that. And we should fear that our self-centeredness keeps us from a larger and bigger life. Because remember, we might risk that 1,000 pounds or 10,000 pounds, but our return is guaranteed. We know it's going to come. And we don't have to wait to experience that because it breaks into our lives in little bits now. So Christ was rejected and killed so that he might include us, embrace us, and give us all that we need when we're on his mission. This is how important you are to Jesus. This is how much he loves you. He went through all of that for you. And if Jesus says, you are mine, we will never experience ultimate rejection. We will always be embraced. We will never be let down. Everything else in this world is up for grabs. But Jesus' embrace is unstoppable. It's ongoing. And there's always room for more to join. And as the recipients of this grace, we are given a new mission for our lives. One that Jesus' body was broken for. One that his blood was poured out for. That Jesus' body was broken. That ours would be made whole. That Jesus' blood was poured out so that we might be included in this new family. In this new mission. Free from our self-centeredness. He was rejected and killed. And not just for our sakes. But for the sakes of all types of people from all kinds of backgrounds. For more people here in Charlton. If you've been included by Jesus in his mission to save us, like this table is for you. If you haven't yet found yourself depending on Jesus, then we ask that you don't take this. We don't want you to do something with your hands and, and your body that's a lie with something that you might believe in your own soul. So if you haven't yet depended on Jesus, this isn't for you. 
What this is for is for the family of people who are dependent on Christ who came through for us when we needed it and continues to come through for us as we do. You don't need to be official part of our church. Um, you just have to be part of Jesus' family because that's what we all are here. And as we come up, receive from Christ, let's ask for him to shape us, to grow us while we're on his mission. Let's ask us to be more dependent, not more independent, not more strong, but more dependent to recognize our weakness more and to come, with, to, come to him with that. And as we're on his mission, Let's understand all the more as we live out his eternal embrace in our everyday lives. Let me pray.